in. And I'm going to do something I, I never do. I'm just going to read something to you, a story. And it's something that requires a little bit of introduction. So let me introduce to you who this is telling this story. And then I'm just going to read it to you and, and let the Lord say what he wants to you in your own heart. So this picture that on the screen is William and Catherine Booth. Uh, probably a lot of you already know those names, but if you don't, uh, they lived in the 1800s. They're both born in 1829 in England. Catherine lived until 1890, and William died in 1912. So we're looking at a little over 100 years ago. Again, they lived in England, and they started what is known as the Salvation Army today. They worked in the streets of London. They were evangelists, and William particularly would go out most every night out into the alleys and the slums and the pubs and the brothels to win people to Jesus. And Catherine wrote once that she frequently had to bandage him up when he got home because he would be assaulted either with fists or stones when he tried to drag drunk guys out of the pub and, and he tried to uh, save prostitutes from the guys that were wanting to hire them. And they were extremely intense evangelists, hardcore for Jesus. He was called the prophet to the poor. He was called the general because he was the leader of the Salvation Army. He preached evangelistic crusades and revival meetings constantly. By 1879, when he was 50, the Booths commanded 81 mission stations with 127 full-time evangelists that preached 75,000 meetings a year. And only half of those were in churches. The other half was in front of the bar front door. They'd just set up across the street and start preaching. Across from the brothels and the pubs. There's a really famous quote that probably quite a few of you are familiar with. If you've been in my office, you've seen it on my wall. Uh, this is probably the most famous quote from his life. He said, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. And all of that has come true to some extent in the hundred years since he died. 107 years to be exact. A quote from Catherine that I wanted to read to you. She said, if we are to better the future, we must disturb the present. Another quote I found online from her is that a salvation that does not result in service to Christ is no salvation at all. That's from James. Faith without works is dead. If you aren't doing something for Jesus, you're not saved. You're just filling a seat in the air-conditioned church. Work, as in work for Jesus, work like everything depends on your work and pray like everything depends on your prayer. So, the Booths are serious church leaders, very serious evangelists, trustworthy Christians. And so I just needed you to know who they were because what I'm going to do today is read to you from a dream, a vision that William Booth had at some point in his life, in his younger years, in his 30s, I believe, so he had a dream, and so dreams aren't scripture, so you might hear some things in here that like, I don't know where that's at in the Bible, but, but overall, this is scriptural. He had a dream where in his dream, he was an average everyday Christian, he said, I was neither rich nor poor, I was not perfect, but I was honestly wanting to serve Christ, I was not a hypocrite in my Christian faith, sometimes I taught in the church, sometimes I gave money, I was just a normal, average, everyday believer in Jesus. And I got in his dream, in his vision, I got sick with a fever and I died and I went to heaven. 
And in heaven, he first describes how, what it smelled like and looks like and tastes like and all of that. He describes the atmosphere, and I'm going to read all this to you in just a moment. Then he meets three people, resurrected saints, humans in heaven, and then he sees the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12, 1 says surrounds Jesus at the throne, and he meets Jesus where the scripture says we will individually stand before Jesus and he will judge our life. Not for heaven or hell, if we're in Christ, our sins are forgiven and they're gone and we're saved, but he will judge us based on did you do anything of value with your life? He wants to reward his people, his servants. So this is the dream and the vision that William Booth has. So again, this is him having it and relating what he saw in his dream, in his vision. But it's not meant to be personal to him. It's like a parable. It's meant to be for all of us, for everyone. Because the circumstances that he dreamed, again, he didn't die of a fever. He dreamed that he died of a fever. Everybody with me? Okay. All right. So I'm going to jump in a few pages into what he wrote where he tells us, I'm an average everyday Christian, I'm a good man, I serve the Lord, I'm not a hypocrite, I, and then I died of a fever, and then he wakes up in heaven, and here we go. After the first feeling of surprise had somewhat subsided, I looked around me and I took in the situation. It was way beyond anything of earth, positively delightful, and yet some of the more beautiful scenes and sounds and feelings of the earth I had just left appeared to be repeated in my new experience in heaven, but much more enchanting. Still, no human eyes ever beheld such perfection and such beauty. No earthly ear ever heard such music. No human heart ever experienced such ecstasy as was my privilege to see and hear and feel in this celestial country. Above me was the loveliest of blue skies. Around me it was an atmosphere so balmy that it made my whole physical frame vibrate with pleasure. Flowing by a bank of roses on which I found myself reclining was the clearest and purest water in a river that seemed to dance with delight of its own murmurings. The trees that grew upon the banks were covered with the greenest foliage and laden with the most delicious fruit, sweet beyond all earthly sweetness. And by lifting up my hand, I could pluck and taste. So he's died of a fever on earth in his vision, in his dream, and he wakes up on a riverbank in heaven. There's roses and fruit trees. Everything is beautiful. With me? In every direction, above and around me, the whole air seemed not only to be laden with the sweetest perfumes coming from the fairest flowers, but filled with the most beautiful forms. For floating around me were beautiful beings that I felt by instinct were angels, seraphim, cherubim, together with the perfect blood-washed saints who had come from our own world. Some were far and some were near. The whole sky at times seemed to be full of white-winged, happy, worshiping, joyous beings, and the whole country, apparently of limitless extent, was filled with a blissful ecstasy that could only be known by experiencing it. You may perhaps imagine my sensation. At first I was swallowed up with a sort of intoxication, which feeling was immediately enhanced by the consciousness that I was safe, I was saved, I was never going to suffer or sin again. And then suddenly a new set of feelings began to creep over me. Strange as it may seem, I felt somewhat lonely and a little sad, even in the midst of this infinite state of bliss, because up to this moment I was alone. No one in the, of the bright beings who were soaring and singing in the sky above me, not one who were running to and fro as though bent upon some high mission, had spoken to me or approached me. I was alone in heaven. And then, in a still stranger and mysterious way, I appeared to feel in myself a sort of unfitness 
for the society of those pure beings who were sailing around me in indescribable loveliness. How could it be? Had I come here by mistake? Was I not counted worthy of this glorious inheritance? It was indeed a mystery. My thoughts went back to earth, and all before me, as though unfolded by an angel's hand, the record of my past life was unrolled before my eyes, and what a record it was. I glanced over it, and in a glance I seemed to master its entire contents, so rapidly indeed that I became conscious of a marvelous quickening of my intellectual powers. I realized I could take in and understand in a moment what would have required a day with my poor, darkened faculties back on earth. With my quickened mind, I saw, to my delight, at the very first glance, that this scroll of my earthly existence, the divine biography, God's story of my life, contained no record of any misdeeds before my conversion. Indeed, that part of my life seemed to be very much a blank. I further perceived that neither was there any record of the sins I had done since that day. It was as though some friendly hand had gone through the roll and blotted out the record of the evil doings of my life. This was very gratifying. I felt like shouting praises to God who had delivered me from the pain of having those things stare me in the face in this beautiful holy land among all these holy beings where it seemed to me that even remembering my sin would defile me. Nevertheless, a further glance at my record appalled me. For there was written therein, leaving out, as I have said, the sins that I committed, there was written the exact daily record of the whole of my past life. In fact, it went much deeper because it described in full detail the object for which I had lived. It recorded my thoughts, my feelings, and actions, how and for what I had employed my time, my money, my influence, and all the other talents and gifts which God had entrusted me to spend for His glory and the salvation of the lost. Every chapter of this record carried my thoughts back to the condition of the earth I had left, and there came up before my eyes a vivid picture of its hatred for God, its rejection of Christ, its wickedness, and all the wretchedness and destitution and abomination. It utterly appalled me. Into my ears there came a hurricane of cursing and blasphemy and a wail of anguish and woe that stunned me. I had seen these sights and I had heard these sounds before. Not too often, it is true, because I had hid myself from them. But now they blinded and stunned me. They appeared a million times blacker and more vile, more wretched and piteous than had ever seemed before. I felt like putting my hands before my eyes and my fingers to my ears to shut these things out from sight and hearing. So intensely real and present did they seem. They wrung my soul with sorrow and self-reproach because on the record of my life I saw how I had occupied myself during the few years which I had been allowed to live amidst all these miseries after Jesus Christ had called me to be his soldier. And I was reminded how instead of fighting his battles, instead of saving souls by bringing them to his feet and preparing them for admission into this lovely place, I had been, on the contrary, intent on living earthly things, selfishly seeking my own, spending my life in practical unbelief and disloyalty and disobedience. I felt sick at heart. Oh, if at that moment I could have crept out of heaven, about which I had sung so much in the past, and I could have gone back into the world of darkness, sin, and misery, which I had just left, if I could but spend another lifetime among, among the lost and dying and truly follow my Lord. But that could not be. My opportunities of earth were past. Heaven must now be my dwelling place forever. And contrary as it may seem, 
That thought filled my soul with unspeakable regret. Then came another thought, more wild than any had gone before it. Remember, I am relating a vision in a dream. It was this. Would it be possible for me to obtain permission to go back into the world, to that very part of it from which I had come, clothed back in human form and live my earthly life again, live it in a worthy manner of my profession of Christ? If at that moment an answer had been brought to me, I would have gladly given up my heavenly blessedness. I would have gladly undergone ages of hardship, ignominy, poverty, and pain. I would have given a million dollars in money. I would have gladly given a world if it had been mine to give. But I could see no hope for a second life. What was to be done? I had not been thinking about this very many seconds, for thoughts appeared to flow with remarkable rapidity, when quick as a lightning flash, one of those bright inhabitants, which I had watched floating far off, descended and stood before my astonished gaze. I can never forget the awestruck feelings with which I beheld this heavenly being. I cannot describe his shape and features and bearing of the noble form, and I will not attempt it. He was at the same time angelic and human, earthly and yet celestial. I discerned, therefore, at a glance that he was one of the blood-washed multitude who had come out of the great tribulation of earth. I not only judged from a certain majestic appearance which he bore, but from instinct I felt that the being before me was a man, a redeemed and glorified human man. He looked at me. I could not keep from returning his gaze. His eyes compelled me. I confess I was ravished by his beauty. I could never have believed that the human face could bear so grand a stamp of dignity and charm. But far beyond the entrancing loveliness of his celestial features was the expression that filled his face and shone through those eyes as if his face were only a sunlit window through which I could see into the depths of his soul, the kind and pure and tender soul within. I don't know how I looked to my beautiful visitor. I don't know what form I had. I had not seen myself in a mirror since I had taken on immortality. It was evident that he had a deep interest in me, but it was an interest which seemed to bring sadness to him. His features seemed to me to grow almost sorrowful as I sat there with my eyes fixed on him in a fascinated spell. He spoke first. Had he not done so, I could never have summoned the courage to address him. His voice was soft and musical and fitted well with the seriousness of his bearing. I understood him almost before his words. Although I cannot tell you what language he spoke, I suppose it was the universal language of heaven. This was the substance of what he said. My arrival had been made known through this region of the celestial heaven, where were gathered the ransomed ones who had come from my earthly neighborhood where I had lived. The tidings of my arrival had been flashed through a sort of heavenly telephone that spoke not in one ear only, but in every ear. My name had been whispered in every hillside and echoed in every valley, had been spoken in every room of every mansion. It had been proclaimed from every tower and pinnacle of the stupendous temple in which these saints day and night present their worship to the Great Father. All who had known me on earth, everyone who had any knowledge of my family and my opportunities for helping forward the kingdom of Christ, was burning to see me and hear me tell of the victories I had won and all the souls I had blessed while on earth. And all were especially anxious to hear if I had been the means of bringing salvation to the loved ones that they had left behind. All this was poured upon my soul like fire and I didn't know which way to look. Again and again, I remembered my life of ease and comfort. What could I say? How could I appear with the record of my life before these waiting ones? What was there in my record except self-gratification? I had no martyr stories to tell. 
I'd sacrificed nothing worth naming on earth, much less in heaven. My mind was running in every direction when I think my visitor must have discovered something of what I was thinking, and he felt pity for me. Seeing my consternation, he spoke again. Where you find yourself is not actually heaven, he said, but only its forecourt, a sort of outer circle. Presently, the Lord himself, with a great procession of his witnesses, will come and take you into the celestial city itself. There is where your residence will be if he deems you worthy, that is, if your conduct on the battlefield below has pleased him. Meanwhile, I have obtained permission to come and speak to you concerning a soul who is very dear to me. I understand he lives in the neighborhood where you recently lived and from which you have just come. Our knowledge of the affairs of earth is, for our own sakes, limited, but now and then we are permitted to get a glimpse. Can you, he asked, tell me anything about my son? He was my only son. I loved him dearly. I loved him too much. I spoiled him when a child and he had his own way. And he grew up willful and passionate and disobedient. And my example didn't help him. Here a cloud for a moment came over the beautiful brow, but vanished as quickly as it came. And he continued the story of his prodigal son. He, the father, had been rescued, washed in the blood of Jesus, regenerated. He had learned to fight for souls. He had won many to the blood-stained banner. But then he had suddenly been taken in death by an accident at his work and was gone to heaven. And now he said, where is my boy? Give me tidings of my boy. He lived near you and had business dealings with you. What did you do for him? Is there any hope? Tell me what his feelings are today. He stopped speaking. My heart sank within me. What could I say? I knew the man. The story of the father's death and his prodigal son had been told me. I had never spoken one serious word to the boy about his soul or about Jesus. I'd been too busy with other things. And now what could I say to his father who stood before me? I was speechless. The cloud that I had noticed before again came over the face of my visitor, but with a dark shadow this time. He must have guessed the truth. He looked at me with a look that I felt was disappointment for himself and pity for me. He spread his wings and soared away. I was so intently gazing after his retreating form that I didn't notice that a second being now stood in that place. I turned and looked upon the newcomer. There was a spirit in the same class of the same ransomed multitude who once were dwellers of earth. There was a dignity of bearing, the same marvelous expression of inward power and purity and joy. But in this case, there was a beauty of more delicate and enthralling mold. Beautiful as I thought the first man was, more beautiful than conception or dream of earth could be, yet here was a beauty that surpassed it. My former visitor, I have said, was a glorious man. This one was evidently the glorified form of a woman. I had, when on earth, sometimes thought that I could have wished for the privilege of beholding Eve in the hour when she came forth from the hands of her maker, and I had imagined something, only something, of what her beauty must have been like as she sprang into being from that bridal morning, young and pure and beautiful, the fair image of her maker, perhaps the sweetest work of God. And now here I saw her, I saw Eve reproduced before my eyes as young and pure and beautiful, even more beautiful than her first mother could possibly have been, for this was his finished work. But I was soon awakened from my dream by the voice of that fair creature, who from her manner evidently wished to speak to me on some matter of great importance. She told me her name. I had known her on earth. She was a widow who had struggled through great difficulties. Her husband's death had resulted in her conversion to Christ. Converted, she had given herself up unreservedly to fight for the Lord. Her children had been her first care, and they were all saved and were fighting for God except one. 
The mention of that name brought some saddening cloud on her lovely face, which had dimmed the bright face of my first visitor, but the cloud vanished almost as soon as it came, and that one, that unsaved one, was a girl who had been her mother's delight. She had grown up beautiful, the village pride, and alas, was gone astray, and that old story of wrong and of being seduced into evil ways, and then an utter abandonment to that evil way of life and all the consequent train of miseries. I listened. I had known some of this sad story, but I had turned away from hearing any more about it because it was no concern of mine. Little did I ever think that I would be confronted with it in heaven. And now the bright spirit turned those eyes upon me, beaming with love and concern, more beautiful than ever. And she said, my daughter lived near you. You know her. Have you saved her? I don't know much about her, but I do know that one earnest, determined effort would save her and win her to Christ. And she asked again, have you saved my child? I must have cried out in agony. I know I put my hands over my eyes because I could no longer bear to meet her intent look, which now turned to one of pity for me. How long she continued to look on me with an expression of concern, I do not know. But when I uncovered my eyes, she was gone. And I cried out, God, is this heaven? Will these questionings go on forever? Will the meanness and selfishness of my life haunt me throughout eternity? What shall I do? Can I not go back to earth and do something to redeem myself from this wretched sense of unworthiness? Can I not live my life over again? The question had hardly passed through my mind when there was another rush of wings and another person came to visit. I will not take time to describe him. You must imagine it. He introduced himself much in the same way as my former visitors. He had been a great singer, but was awakened and won to Christ only a short time back. Having much forgiven, he had loved much. All his desire after his conversion was to get free from the entanglements of business and to devote himself a living sacrifice to the saving of men. When just on the threshold of the realization of his wish, he had died. And here he was, a spirit of glory and joy, coming to inquire of me concerning the church group among whom he had labored and all the crowd of his former companions that he'd left behind. Was I acquainted with his little church? Their place of worship was near my place of business. Had I helped them in their difficulties, in their service and testimony of Christ? Had I done anything for his old mates who were drinking and cursing their way to hell? He had died with prayers for them on his lips. Had I stopped them on their way to ruin? Again, I could not speak. What could I say? I knew his church. I had never once given them any encouragement or help. I knew of the dens of hell in which his former friends spent their time and money. But I had been too busy, or too proud, or too cowardly to seek them out with the message of Jesus' love. I was utterly speechless. He guessed my feelings, I suppose, because with a look of sympathy he laughed. As for myself, I was in anguish, strange as it may appear considering I was in heaven, but so it was. Wondering whether there was not some comfort for me, I involuntarily looked around and I saw a marvelous phenomenon on the horizon at a great distance. All that part of the heavens appeared to be filled with a brilliant light, surpassing the blaze of a thousand suns at noonday, and yet there was no blinding glare that made it difficult to gaze upon, as is the case with our own sun. Here was the brilliance far surpassing what can be imagined, and yet I could look on it with pleasure. As I continued to gaze, 
wondering what it might be, it appeared to me to come a little closer, and then I realized it was coming my direction. I was still reclining on the banks of that beautiful river. Now I could distinctly hear the sound of music. The distance was a great many miles after the measurement of earth, but the atmosphere was so clear and I found my eyesight so strong that I could easily see objects at a distance which on earth would have required a powerful telescope. The sounds came closer. It was music, beyond question, but such music as I had never heard. There was a strange commingling of other sounds, which together made up a marvelous melody. The strains came from the multitude of musicians, the shouts and songs that proceeded from uncountable voices. This phenomenon was approaching rapidly. Finally, I was able to make out what it was. It was astounding, but who can describe it? The whole sky was filled with innumerable forms, each of beauty and dignity, far surpassing the three I had just met. Here was a representative portion of the aristocracy of heaven accompanying the king, the great cloud of witnesses who came to welcome into the heaven of heavens the spirits of men and women who had escaped from earth, who had fought the good fight, who had kept the faith, and who had overcome in the conflict he had overcome. I stood filled with awe and wonder. Could it be possibly? Was it I at last actually to see my Lord and be welcomed by him? In the thought of this rapture, I forgot the sorrow that only a moment before had reigned in my heart, and my whole nature swelled with expectation and delight. And now the procession was upon me. I had seen some of the pageants and parades of earth, displays that required the power of kings and the wealth of great cities to create, but they were each a candle to a tropical sun in comparison with the tremendous scene that spread itself before my astonished eyes. On and on and on it came. I sprung up from my reclining position, but then fell on my face as the first rank of these shining heavenly spirits neared me. Each one looked like a god, at least as far as outward appearance can be. Rank after rank swept past me. Each one turned his eyes upon me, or seemed to. I could not help feeling I was something of an object of pity to them all. Perhaps it was my own feelings that made me imagine this, but I certainly, it certainly appeared to me as though these noble beings regarded me as a fearful, cowardly soul who had only cared for my own interests on earth and had come up here with the same selfish motives. On they came, thousands passed me, yet there was appeared to me no diminishment in the numbers yet to come. I looked at the procession as it stretched backwards. My eyes could see no end to it. There must have been millions, indeed a multitude that no man can count. All were praising God in hymns, expressing adoration and worship and recounting in songs of rapture the mighty victories they had witnessed on earth. And now the great central glory and attraction of the whole parade was at hand. I gathered this from the still more dignified character of the beings which now swept by, the heavier crash of music, the louder shouts. I was right. Before I could prepare my spirit for the visitation, it was upon me. The king was here. In the center of the circling hosts, which rose tier upon tier into the blue sky above, turning on him their millions of eyes, lustrous with the love they bore him, I beheld the celestial form of Jesus Christ who died for me upon the cross. The procession halted. Then at a word of command, they formed up instantly in three sides of a square in front of me. The king standing in the center immediately opposite the spot where I was on my face. What a sight it was, worth toiling a lifetime to behold. Nearest to the king were the patriarchs, 
and apostles of ancient times. Next, rank after rank, came the holy martyrs who had died for him. Then came the army of warriors who had fought for him in every part of the world. And around and about and above and below, I beheld millions and millions of people who were never heard of on earth outside of their own neighborhood or beyond their own times, who with self-denying zeal and untiring toil had labored to extend God's kingdom and to save the souls of men. And encircling that gorgeous scene, above and beneath and around hovered glittering angelic beings, proud to minister in the happiness and exultation of these redeemed ones out of the poor world I had just left. I was bewildered by the scene, the songs, the music, the shouts, the multitude that came like a roar of a thousand waterfalls echoed and re-echoed through the sunlit mountains, and the magnificent and endless array of happy spirits ravished my senses with passionate delight. All at once, however, I remembered myself, and I was reminded of the high presence before whom I bowed. And lifting up my eyes, I beheld him gazing upon me. And what a look it was. It was not pain, yet it was not pleasure. It was not anger, yet it was not approval. Anyway, I felt that in that face, so inexpressibly admirable and glorious, there was no welcome for me. I felt this in the faces of my previous visitors, and I felt it again in the Lord's. That face, that divine face, seemed to say to me, for language was not needed to convey to the depths of my soul what his feelings were to me. You will not feel yourself in harmony with these who were once the companions of my tribulation and now share my glory. They counted not their lives dear to them in order that they might bring honor to me and salvation to men. And then he gave a look of admiration to the host of apostles and martyrs and warriors gathered around him. Oh, that look of Jesus. I felt that to have one such loving recognition, it would have been worth dying a hundred deaths at the stake. It would have been worth being torn asunder by lions. The angelic escort felt it too, for their responsive burst of praise and song shook the sky and the ground on which I lay. Then the king turned his eyes on me again, and I wished that some mountain would fall upon me and hide me forever from his presence. But I wished in vain. Some invisible and irresistible force compelled me to look up, and my eyes met his once more, and I felt, again rather than heard, him saying to me in words that engraved themselves as fire upon my brain, Go back to earth, and I will give you another opportunity. Prove yourself worthy of my name. Show to the world that you possess my spirit by doing my works and becoming on my behalf a savior of men. You will return here when you have finished your battle, and I will give you a place in my conquering parade and a share of my glory. What I felt under that look and those words no heart or mind could possibly describe. First came the unutterable anguish arising out of the full realization that I had completely wasted my life, that it had been a life squandered on the paltry ambitions and trifling pleasures of earth, while it might have been filled and sown with deeds that would have produced a never-ending harvest of eternal fruit. My life could have won for me the approval of heaven's king and made me worthy to be the companion of these glorified heroes. But combined with that, there was a gleam of hope. My earnest desire to return to earth had been granted. Perhaps it was in response to the longings I had felt. The realization of my earthly failures had dawned upon me. 
and this favor was granted to me. I would have the privilege of living my life over again. True, it was a high responsibility, but Jesus would be with me. His Spirit would enable me, and in my heart, I felt ready to face it. The cloud of shining ones vanished. The music was silent. I closed my eyes, and I gave myself over, body, soul, and spirit, to the disposal of my Savior, to live, not for my own salvation, but for the glory of Christ and for the salvation of the world. And then and there, that same blessed voice of my King spoke in my heart as He promised that His presence should go with me back to earth and He will make me more than a conqueror through His blood. Amen. Live for that day, folks. Live for that day. The only thing that matters for all of eternity is that we hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Nothing that we do or accomplish or buy matters. Our sports and our hunting and our trips and our entertainment is all worthless if you're not totally living for Jesus. It is meaningless. I'm really tempted to preach, but I'm not going to. I'm going to let William Booth speak for himself. That was the dream that he really had. It's what he really saw. I hope you're terrified in an encouraged way. Don't waste your life. Live for that day. Nothing else matters but that you serve Him, you serve His church, and you serve the lost. Amen. Lord Jesus, we receive Your encouragement this morning. We receive Your merciful warning, Your reminder that we live for the day when we stand before You to have our lives judged, not for heaven or hell, but for value, for gold and silver and precious stones or wood and hay and straw. Lord, we want to be your servants. And we say that we are, Lord, but we want to actually serve you instead of just saying the right thing. We want to be your disciples. We want to be your companions. Lord, you are the most brave, courageous, selfless man. And your companions are not cowards. Your disciples cannot be selfish. We must die to this world to serve you and your church and the lost. Lord, forgive us for laziness. Forgive us for selfishness. For having priorities that do not matter, that are a complete waste of time compared to eternity. Forgive us for justifying things. Well, it's not sin. Well, it's not. But squandering our time is. For spending our money on things that will not satisfy and will not last through your holy fire. When we need your correction, we need your discipline, we need your love, we need your boldness, we need your courage, we need your instruction so that we can be your true disciples. It's all that matters, Lord, is that you smile at us when we meet, that you say, Well done good and faithful servant. 
that you are pleased with how we spend our time and our money and our energy and our talents. Forgive us for burying our talents under the tree. Nobody has to stand, but if you would say this, I needed this this morning. I needed to be shook up a little bit. I need to repent of selfishness or laziness. Stand up. Don't stand up if you don't mean it. Lord, we receive your love, your merciful warning, your gentle correction, your terrifying encouragement, Lord. We want to be with you. We want to love you, to serve you, to earn you glory, Lord. Never to earn our place in heaven, but to earn your glory. To please you with our lives. You told us that faith without works is dead. Forgive us for speaking faith and doing nothing, or at least very little. Make your bride worthy, spotless, and clean. Lord, we give you everything. We surrender it all. And when we say that, you know we're only giving a part. But we honestly mean it. We're all yours. Burn away everything that doesn't matter and light our hearts on fire with holiness and love and salvation. I bless every person here in the name of Jesus Christ with grace and peace, with courage, with love, with a holy burning for Jesus and for the lost. We bless your holy name, Jesus. Amen.